Hello, and welcome to Learn to Love, a show where we talk all about things you can do to build a better, stronger relationship. Our team is powered by passionate volunteers looking to bring forward the best of what they know to help you stay together. Love is hard, but it doesn't have to be. Our podcast, articles, and videos feature insights from the latest research on relationship psychology, intimacy, conflict resolution, parenting, and more. You don't need to go in blind and make the same mistakes as those around you. Check us out on our brand new website at learnlove.ca or listen on our podcast, the Learn to Love podcast. Thank you for joining us in our vision to create healthier relationships and stronger families. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm super excited to be welcoming you back to this brand new episode of the Learn to Love podcast, where we're going to wrap up our discussion on habits and get into this brand new topic that feelings don't have IQ. Before we get into the episode, just some exciting announcements to make. First, we have teamed up with a really awesome service called Podscribe.ai. They make transcriptions for all of our podcasts. So if you want to see them uh, in text form instead of the audio, we're going to have those up on our website really soon. There's an interactive widget component too. So if you want to see the text being highlighted as the podcast is going on. Um, you can have that as well coming very soon to our website. I know that a number of other fellow podcasters listen to um, this podcast. So if you are a podcaster and you're interested in getting really nice transcriptions done for your podcast with a nice interactive widget, really nice customer service and everything, check out podscribe.ai. They are super, super helpful, and we are so happy to be working with them to make this podcast better for you, our listeners. We have been ramping up our social media as well, so you can check us out on Instagram or Twitter at Learn to Love Media or on Pinterest or Facebook at Learn to Love. Uh, We share some really nice quotes with videos there and some highlights from our blog. Uh, So you can see all that there. We are also working on revamping our blog to make it a little bit more vibrant uh, for you. So we're going to get our quote blocks to the next level by making the text a bit bigger and nicer so you can skim through the article to see the main quotes. We are also working towards making short videos that will go at the beginning of the blog post to summarize them in video format. So you can have a little one minute video summary if that's what you're into with the main points. Um, We've done a number of upgrades on the blog already, like through making it load much faster faster and through making a table of contents kind of heading organizer at the beginning. So definitely check that out. And a final um, announcement is we are finished 
editing all 70 videos for our first video course, which is going to be called Love Smarter, Not Harder. It talks all about really important topics like conflict resolution, feelings, uh, part about what we're going to talk about in the episode today, that feelings don't have IQ. We're going to talk about the lenses we see the world by, intimacy, big misconceptions about love, those love languages, stages of a relationship, teamwork, and so much more. We've been working really, really hard to edit all those videos and record them. It's about six and a half hours of video and audio. Um, so if you are interested in that course, um, I'll let you know when it is released. I'm so happy though. We finished editing. Now it's just a matter of uploading everything onto Udemy and then making some quizzes for you, some worksheets some infographics that you can download to help guide you through a really nice structured learning program to drive home some of the fundamental topics that we discuss on the show. So I'm really, really excited that we are done uh, with that. It was a big, big time commitment uh, for sure. But also now that that's out of the way, we can focus more again on giving you really great blog articles. I'm sorry that there have not been new blog posts over the past two weeks, um, largely due to this editing um, that we've been doing. But we have continued to update the podcast. And um, as soon as the course is up, we will update the blog too and give a number of new posts. We currently have seven um, that are in development. Another really exciting thing, so I, I write for the blog too. I enrolled in a course on writing with flair um, on how to write better. So uh, we've been working really hard with different editors and tools to make the writing really nice. But I hope. Let me know if you notice a change in blog posts that are going to be written in this next round of writing. Um, it's going to be a little bit of, let me know if, yeah, if you notice anything different in the writing style based on the course that will show up under Learn to Love Editors. Now, let's get into this episode today. So I said we're going to revamp sorry, re summarize um, habits um, and add a little bit more there. And then we're going to talk all about feelings, specifically that feelings don't have IQ. In the last couple episodes, we've been talking a lot about habits, the idea that there is a cue, which makes a behavior, the response. And a lot of this actually is subconscious. A habit is formed when you're not thinking about it. So, for example, you hear the doorbell, you answer the door, you go to the washroom in the morning and you brush your teeth, you turn on the shower and you wash your body, you hear your phone beep and you touch your phone, you see the light turn red when you're driving and hopefully you put your foot on the brake. Habits are cues that form responses, okay? Cue, response. Now, the thing is that if there's something that we don't like, if, if the response is something that we don't enjoy doing, then we have the opportunity to change the habit. So for example, let's say 
that you were never taught so much about dealing with anger when you were younger. And then you heard this whole series that we had all about conflict resolution and you're thinking, oh my goodness, I don't want to lash out at my partner whenever I have conflict with them. That's just, I feel like that's not me and I want that to be me. And I'm learning all these tools, but I want to learn how to apply them. How can I apply them now if my default reaction, knowing everything I know, is just to spite back, you know, just to to yell or just to say something that I'm going to later regret or just to walk away. Okay, well, this is maybe a habit that was formed. So the cue is feeling tense, feeling anxious, feeling scared, okay, or, or just feeling like under pressure and you don't really know what to do, which makes that response of then walking away, spiting back, you know, like, like doing those, doing those things that we don't like. So we, we, we talked about a number of different approaches of how to handle this in, in the last episode. So the, the first one, which comes to mind, which was really the focus of the last episode, change your environment, change your life, was to change that cue. So for example, if every time you see your phone and it beeps and you're checking your phone and you don't want to be checking your phone so much, we can get rid of the cue of the phone in sight and the beeper on, the ringer on, to get rid of the habit of checking it so much. Another thing we could do is we could make more friction, okay? So like by turning off our phone and putting it away in our bag or in a drawer or something, we have to turn on that phone again every time we want to use it. It's going to make so much more friction. Now we're going to be less inclined to use it, okay? So friction, um, changing the cue, getting rid of the cue. But what if the cue is that our partner is very angry with us? Okay, well, hopefully using limits, as we talked about in the conflict resolution section, um, we can actually prevent 95% of fights by just trying to communicate more effectively, using limits at the beginning to be proactive to establish very clearly what's okay and not okay. We talked about the idea that so many of us really want to be treated a certain way, but we don't communicate that with someone. And maybe we don't even know the way that we want to be treated. So how is our partner supposed to treat us in a certain way if we don't even know the way that we want to be treated in the first place? We have to really, really think about that by asking those questions to ourselves and answering them and pondering about them. Those kinds of things like, what's not okay? What hurts? What am I not willing to give up for the relationship? Okay, what feels really bad? What can I not tolerate? Yes, I just want to separate the distinction again between I don't like unloading the dishwasher, that feels really bad. And I don't like it when you compare me to my friends or you criticize me in a certain tone of voice, okay? Unloading the dishwasher, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, it's just part of life and it's just something that we have to deal with um, regardless. But speaking with a certain tone of voice, criticizing, using certain words, calling certain names that trigger us, maybe related to our soft spots. Remember soft spots, those things that get us zero to a hundred really quickly. Those are places to set limits. For example, and this relates to love languages too, as we've talked about, like, let's say that it's really important for your partner to spend 15 minutes a day where you guys can just talk over tea and communicate and share how you feel together. And it, and they feel so empty, so lost and drained if you don't have that 15 minutes a day of communication without 
distraction like the phone or something else or the TV or something that's really bothering them. Well, then maybe you can make a limit, you can set a limit on the need to have that at least 15 minutes, okay? Remember the limits clear, consistently enforced, well advertised. Do you want to learn more about that? Check out the limits episode because I'm, I'm not going to go over it again in detail here. So how do we get rid of the cue? Well, well the idea is that they're using limits through, through establishing what's important with our partner, communicating that clearly we can prevent most fights in the first place. So if the cue is a lot of anger and we use limits to try prevent those that anger from forming in the first place, then, okay, that's a great way to remove the cue. Um, other really important things that we talked about why anger forms is through lack of connection. We talked about an emotional bank account, um, but that everyone needs connection. We're humans, we're social creatures, we need to communicate with each other, we need to share feelings, exchange feelings with each other. If you are not exchanging a lot of feelings with your partner, if you're not leaning into the relationship, as, as John Gottman would say, then you're creating a void as Sue Johnson also talks about this too, and hold me tight, avoid to make a need for feeling. And what's the easiest way to get a lot of emotion, emotional exchange from a partner? What evokes the most emotion generally with the least amount of effort? It is often anger, anger, guys. Your partner may try to provoke anger in you, or you may try be doing this in your partner just because you want them to notice you, just because you want them to pay attention. Just because you want them to say that they're there or make you feel like you exist or they exist, okay? So by building that emotional bank account, by sharing feelings with each other, often leaning in, talking about our day, communicating, and setting up an environment that promotes communication, we can prevent fights in that way. Why, why be, try so hard to get someone to notice you and make you feel like you exist through anger when you have that already in other ways, through other ways, okay? Now, okay, so we, we talked now how to prevent the, be proactive to stop the cue, okay? But let's say that um, we can't always remove the cue because of course there's always going to be times that we have conflict and we're trying to form a new habit about the way that we deal with conflict. Well, we can actually build that habit up through practice. So in the minor times, hopefully minor, when conflict does arise, um, what I mean by minor is kind of rare times that conflict arises. You can be prepared with your new habit, your new default habit to go to um, to deal with that. So how can you do this? Well, remember we said that habits are formed by repetition. Neurons that wire together, fire together. Neurons that fire together, wire together, okay? So if we can get a combination of events to occur concurrently over and over and over again, for example, get agitated, take a deep breath, um, tell my partner I'm feeling overwhelmed right now, um, and if other tools to deal with conflict. For example, if your partner is very agitated and then it makes you agitated, so uh, the sequence of events that, that can go for you is notice that my partner is very agitated. Step one. Step two, take a deep breath. Step three, ask them, honey, how do you feel? And then 
being curious. What's that like for you? Where do you feel that in your body? What's something that I can do right now to support you? Can I give you a hug? Can I hold you? Okay. Remember that habits are sequences of events that occur together. So the habit phone ring, pick up the phone, check the messages, board, scroll through Instagram. Okay. These are habits, sequences of events better formed by repetition. So by making new sequences and repeating them over and over and over again, they can become our new default later. What is an example of this? Again, the conflict, take a deep breath, help partner. Okay. Ask partner what's going on. What can I do to help? What does that feel like for you? But how can we practice this? Well, the thing is that when we're stressed, our, we often resort to our habits because what is stress? Stress is that we are like very overwhelmed, right? There's a lot going on in our heads. There's a lot that we feel in our body and we don't know what to do. Like we're just stressed, 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 like tension, overwhelmed, overwhelmed. Now, when we are overwhelmed, we're going to resort to our habits because if, if we already have so much going on in our head, then we don't have space to think anymore. And we talked about how habits essentially do the thinking for us kind of thing. It's like, if you don't have time to think, you're just going to act without thinking. And we see this often in negative ways. So for example, like let's say that you are talking on the phone and you're really, really focused on your conversation on the phone. Unfortunately, you're not going to have time to think about where you're going and your habit is step one foot forward, step another foot forward, one step, another, one, two, one, two, one step, you know, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. Unfortunately, if you're spending all your energy on the phone and your habit is left foot, right foot, you may end up walking right into a pool, a glass wall, or even a swimming pool. I'm sure we've all seen videos of people do these kinds of things, or maybe it happened to you. I think it happens a lot more common than people think it does. This is a classic example of being so occupied on one thing that you don't have the energy to think. When you don't have the energy to think, you just keep doing the habit and it can end really badly. For example, texting while driving, big no-no. If you're spending your energy texting, you don't have space to think about driving and your habit of keeping your foot on the gas is going to take you right in to the bumper of the car in front of you. Hopefully not do any major damage, okay? Don't, don't, don't ever want to drive distracted because of this, because we need to focus on the task at hand so that we don't stick to our existing habits of just continuing to accelerate, okay? Or if you're braking at a red light and you check your phone, which you shouldn't, um, it's illegal here at where we're recording, and the light turns to green and the car behind you honks at you, that's because your habit of keeping your foot on the brake is staying there because you don't have the energy to think about it. Now, the same thing, unfortunately, often happens in times of conflict or stress. So if you have conflict with your partner, you don't have a lot of energy to think about how you want to respond because you're spending so much of your energy thinking about the actual conflict at hand. Now, this is an, this is like un- unfortunate in a, in a sense, but it can also be very fortunate because it's... if. If you're spending so much energy thinking about the actual um, conflict and you don't have a lot of energy to like to, to think about the way you want to respond, 
um, you can have a good built-in habit that you always resort to. Habits keep us going in times when we can't think. So if your habit is always to lash out, to yell back, then it's going to come naturally to you. But through repeating the sequence, even through role play with your partner, through thinking about it, through practicing, guys, you can always, always practice and repeating over and over and over again the sequence. Get stressed. I mean, don't get stressed on purpose, but you can just you know, you even could in like a, in a nice way, like ask your partner to do something that stresses you. For example, put your hand in cold water while, um, solving a math problem and then trying to talk respectfully to your partner after doing that for three minutes. Like that's going to cause stress. Okay. Now, so, okay, so when we don't have time to think, when we don't have the energy to think, we resort to those habits. So if we leave a good habit through a lot of repetition of taking a deep breath when we feel stressed, of asking our partner when we see that they're angry, giving them the chance to vent, how do you feel? Tell me more. What does that feel like in your body? I'm with you. I'm here for you. We're a team. We're going to do this together. We're going to solve this together. I'm on your side. You're going to find yourself resorting to those words when conflict arises. When you don't have the energy to think, you can change your habits to good things, which will guide you in the right direction. And just remember that a theme throughout this course is just, sorry, throughout this, this podcast and also throughout the course, um, but there, there is more in the course um, and it's very structured. So if you listen to this podcast, you will still find the course very meaningful. Um, is... You don't have to wait until the emergency to learn how to work together, deal with conflict, take a deep breath, deal with stress, anything, okay? You can always practice the repetition. Just keep practicing role-play situations, thinking about it, dreaming about it, whatever it takes for you to repeat it enough in your mind for it to click. And the same thing, guys, like this learning through repetition, through practice, you do it everywhere else in your life. You may think it's kind of strange to practice dealing with stress and conflict and doing a lot of repetition to learn like in your home, but this has always guided you through life. For example, when you try to learn a new concept in school, maybe you were trying to learn a second language, okay? You never really got the word the first time. You had to keep repeating, repeating, repeating that word over and over and over again in its translation before it stuck for it's stuck, really, for you. And so an example of this habit would be the cue is the word. For example, hello is the cue. And the response you want is bonjour for French, okay? Or hola or wh whatever you want, okay? Whatever language you're learning. So that's the thing. Cue, hello, response, bonjour. It's repetition, now, the thing is, you don't wait until the exam to start learning. Like, the, if you wait until the exam, you're going to fail. You know that. So what you do is you study before the exam. And the same thing is the way that we deal with conflict with our partners, the way that we learn habits. The exam is the actual fight that's going to arise occasionally, okay? Or the major time you guys have to work together because of a family emergency or something. That's the exam. That's the time where you really have to be you know, on, on, at your best, to perform the best, to be most effective, the time where it's really critical and most important that you're acting, okay? But a lot of us just wait until the exam to start. But guys, if you don't start learning those words, making that cue response, hello, bonjour, before the exam, like, you're going to fail, and that's not where you want to go, okay? Like, 
what, what we want is to practice with our partner that role play of what do I do when you're stressed? Practice. You can say, honey, pretend that you're really mad at me. And then they go, you know, maybe they'll find something to be mad at you for. And then just respond. Say, what's it like for you? What do you feel? I'm here. Or just take a deep breath. Every time you find that yourself stressed at work, stressed at anything you do, just try and take a deep breath. Eventually, when you do it enough, it's going to stick. And your default reaction to feeling stressed is going to be to take a deep breath. Isn't that amazing? Repetition, practice. That's what we're all about. Now, the next thing I want to mention briefly before completely closing off this discussion on habits for now and transitioning into feelings don't have IQ is... Um, a very, very interesting um, event that I was particularly interested in when I was studying um, health promotion and psychology, um, harm reduction. I actually wrote an article about this for um, a, a journal, like a, um, like a medical journal, um, a scientific journal, sorry, not a medical journal, scientific journal, um, talking about harm reduction and how people can apply it uh, in in universities and schools for students who are using substances off-counter, um, which are negatively affecting their health and their school performance. I'm not going to talk about this here because the show is about relationships, um, but this event really inspired me to write that article and I want to share it with you here because it talks a lot about how important environmental cues are for habit formation. Now, this relates to the Vietnam War when US, um, the US government sent a lot of troops to Vietnam um, to help fight communism there and restore democracy to the country. Um, from what I understand of the war. Now, the, the interesting thing about this is a lot of soldiers who were there started using heroin, not specifically heroin, but a kind of like like substance that was there that's very similar to heroin. Um, and it was just very common. It was very pure, very common, very available. And a lot of soldiers started to use it to help deal with stress, anxiety, or boredom, or whatever other troubles they were experiencing while they were in Vietnam. Now, I'm sure you can imagine as the news started to report that many soldiers were using this like heroin-like substance um, while in Vietnam, people got really concerned that all these returning soldiers would come and totally, totally like, you know, cause a lot of damage to the country. Like, you know, suddenly all these young people are going to come back and be drug addicts and like live on the streets and like inject and like, no, 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 no. Like people were really scared about that, especially families. You know, I had children, um, and you go away, and a partner, and, you know, the partner's terrified that they're going to come back and be, like, total drug addicts, and that's not what they wanted, for sure. It's totally scary. Now, something really interesting happened, which is that when the soldiers returned, about 95% of them stopped using heroin completely, completely, stopped drug use completely after arriving in the U.S. And even on follow-ups, like a year later, two years later, they have never and no one in their family has ever reported of them using this drug. They became completely clean. 
Now, how is that even possible? I want you to just get this in your head again and for it to stick. You have all these soldiers using drugs in Vietnam. Heroin, guys, is very, very addictive and dangerous, okay, in Vietnam. And when they come back to America, suddenly they don't use it anymore. How is it that 95% of the soldiers who were using stopped using completely when they arrived back home? Well, the answer to this is that it relates a lot to our habit cues, our environments, okay? So, in Vietnam, the trigger, the cue for using the heroin was being scared, feeling anxious, bored, the jungles, the guerrilla fighters, the, the... like combat anxiety, the loneliness, okay, all these things that existed in Vietnam that didn't exist in the U.S. when they returned home. I mean, yes, there was still loneliness and other problems, but they had a house now. They had a family. They had their children. The context was very, very different. And because of that, they were no more cues, no more triggers to use the drug in the first place. And that's why I say it's so important, change your environment, change your life. If you find that there are a lot of cues that are triggering negative behavior, and you can discover these cues through doing exercises to recognize what like what you feel at different situations. For example, if you notice that you feel bad after checking Instagram, then maybe Instagram is a cue for feeling bad. For the soldiers in Vietnam, being in Vietnam and being in combat was a cue for using heroin. Um, but, but when that cue was gone, the drug you stopped for 95% of them. So I just, I want this to really, really drive home the idea for you that cues are so, so important. There's so many apps to help us recognize how we feel in different situations. So, um, for example, there's one called, I mean, I'm not affiliated with any of these, um, but there's one called Daily O, which I heard good things about, like D-A-I-L-Y. Oh, which basically asks you to write how you feel at different times of the day and what you're doing. And it's going to help you understand how different things that you do make you feel better or worse. For example, going to the gym makes you feel really good two hours later. Maybe sleeping in makes you feel really bad four hours later. Maybe eating a full dinner makes you feel really good the next morning. You can only really notice these once you start writing them down. You're going to kind of become like a data scientist of your own emotions, of your own life. It's going to help you build emotional intelligence. And just be more in control of of your life, okay? We are often, like, hugely, hugely influenced by our environment, by our habit cues, by our habits, but by recognizing those cues and how they affect us, just like the soldiers, when they change their environment, that whole habit they were trying to get rid of disappeared virtually. We can also change our environment to make the things that make us anxious, scared, lonely, tense, and others, okay, to try to reduce them and try to instead have more things in our environment which make us feel better, loved, cared for, so much more. For example, is talking to your partner for 15 minutes, like the example we talked about earlier, if it leads you to feel loved and cared for, okay, and noticed and present and important, then that's the cue, okay, for those good feelings. So it's important to recognize that and then set it up with your partner so you can both feel better. Okay. Now we talked, we we mentioned a bit about feelings when we talked about how these cues affect our feelings. Okay. But I want to relate to the idea now a little bit more 
um, that feelings don't have IQ. So in the second half of this this show now, the first half we talked about habits, we talked about the environment, how it's so important to establishing habits, how habits are built from repetition, how it's totally okay to try to build new habits through practice before the exam, just like we do in everything else in our life through practicing with our partner, role play, thinking about it, dreaming about it, imagining what we do in situations, okay? Now, now, okay, so we talked about habits. Now I want to talk a little bit more about feelings. So we mentioned that habits affect feelings. Let's get more into feelings. So a lot of us, we go into relationships because we want to feel good, okay? And the moment we don't feel good anymore, we say, I'm out. Or like, this isn't working. This is not what I expected. This is not for me. Now, the to, to kind of address this, we had a stage of a relationship that we made called struggle to make you expect that there are times when it's supposed to be hard and only by overcoming this hardship can you guys really grow, okay? But the big idea, so, so what, what I want you to think first is that it's okay that times are hard sometimes. You know, in the case of extreme abuse and other things that are persistent and it's really not working out, that's negative, okay? That, that's not good. Okay, we don't, we don't want to go there. Um, there are a ton of professional resources available to help you understand if you're in one of those like really toxic situations to recognize it and to exit it. Um, but I just want you to recognize that we can't always feel good, okay? And you're going to notice this also when you do that exercise that I suggested where you record how you feel at different times of the day, what you're doing, how it affects your feelings. You will never always be at a 10, ever, okay, for two, two reasons. The first is that your body adjusts to the situation that you're in. So it's not as much your environment always that affects your feelings. It's also your body, okay, and your mind. So have you ever noticed, like, you get a gift, for example, like a new piece of jewelry or flowers or something, and it makes you feel really, really, really good. Or maybe even a new car. You get a new car, it makes you feel really good for the first two, three months, okay? And then you realize that you just feel the same as before you even got the car in the first place. I mean, yeah, if your old car was broken and didn't function, and this one does, then okay, super. But um, I mean, if you just wanted the upgrade, you may not even feel better a few months later, you're just going to get used to the car, okay? Um, another example is like, if you're like, I really want a bigger house, you know, I want this, I want a pool. Eventually, you're going to get used to it. And this, this comes from studies on happiness, which look at happiness versus income. And they notice, like a lot of these studies that I saw, they, they notice the researchers that once you hit a certain threshold, like $50,000 a year, $80,000 a year, based on the cost of living in the city, basically once you can afford a safe place to live and food on the table and occasional vacations, happiness doesn't increase proportionally to income anymore. It kind of levels off. Actually, it often goes down with very high levels of income. Some people think the more you have, the less you have to gain, the more you have to lose. And it's kind of like a stress, a burden. 
Other interesting experiments on the subject were done in the 1980s and 90s where they gave researchers gave people beepers and the beeper would go off every hour. And whenever it went off, people had to stop what they were doing and quickly write down on a notepad what they were doing in the moment and how they felt from 1 to 10. Now, what do you think? If people had to rate how they feel from 1 to 10, and maybe you'll notice this when you do the exercise um, that I told you on your phone, like getting the app and writing how you feel at different times of the day, how do you think they rated how they felt? Do you think that they were always at a one, two, three, five, ten? What do you think? Well, it was really interesting to discover that people almost always rated a seven. Shopping at the grocery store, seven. Just came home to see my partner, seven. Picked up my kids from school, seven. Um, picking up dry cleaning, seven. Walk at the park, seven. People almost always, always said seven. What? Now, occasionally something really good would happen. They'd be like, um, got a promotion at work, 10. Like they feel amazing, 10. And then a few weeks later, it would go back down to working, seven. Home, seven. Getting ready for bed, seven. You know, getting ready for work, seven. <laughs> you know, going for a walk seven. And then other times, things that are really bad would happen. For example, um, child didn't do as well in school as we hoped, feeling sad about their marks, four, okay? Or argument with partner, two, okay? Or just feeling really down right now, five, okay? These kinds of things, like haven't been able to exercise and, and work enough, okay? Or sleep enough, three, okay? They'd rate these numbers, but often these numbers wouldn't persist. They would rate five or three one day, and then a few days later, they were back at seven. That's the thing. It was seven, seven, seven. Then it would go up to 10 briefly, come back down to seven, go down to three, four, come back up to seven. It was always hovering around seven when people were asked how good they feel. Now, isn't that amazing? Because it goes to show that it's not so much the environment entirely that determines how we feel, but it's also just our bodies themselves. Our bodies get used to things, tolerant of things. And it is basically like the way the hormones in our bodies work. So for example, if you have a lot of neurotransmitter like dopamine for example which has many many functions but it's it's also commonly known as like a feel good hormone um, because it makes you feel good if you have a lot of dopamine your cells are just going to become less sensitive to it isn't that amazing you just get used to whatever you have in that sense so this is actually how drug use also often forms into drug addiction so the, the reason is because if you're, okay, so dopamine, neurotransmitter, heart, like it's a thing in your brain um, that your neurons use to talk to each other and it often makes you feel good. And there's a whole bunch of feel good things in the brain, like endorphins, can, um, like a whole bunch of things I'm not going to talk about here, um, get into them because it's more like neuroscience. But the big idea is, so you have it in your brain, okay? 
Now, the thing is, if you have too much of it, the cell is going to get the neuron that it goes to, if it comes in too much form, is going to get overstimulated and it can get injured, it can die, it can, like, a whole bunch of problems can happen if it gets overstimulated. So the cell has a need to protect itself. If you have too much dopamine coming for it to deal with, it needs to become less sensitive to dopamine so that it won't die from all that exposure, that consistent exposure to it. And there are a number of ways that it could do this. The first is through getting rid of its dopamine receptors, like making less of them or making more of them. So for example, let's say when seven out of 10 receptors are on, the cell is going to be like activated at the optimal amount. Well, it can just make 400 receptors. So now it needs that same ratio um, to be activated in the same way. So 280 out of 400. So now it's going to take way more molecules to bind to it to give you that same 70% bind saturation rate to give you the desired effect on the cell. That's another thing. Or they can just like get rid of the receptor or make less of them. Okay. Or it can change the effect that happens when dopamine binds to the receptor. So instead of it having a huge effect when it binds, it can change something to have a smaller effect because it's going to keep binding and then that buildup of small effects is going to lead to the same reaction, okay? A way to think about this to make it a little bit easier to understand is I want you to imagine a beaker, like a water beaker. I actually did this demonstration um, about six years ago. Yeah, six years ago for a science class to talk to them about it. It was a presentation all about addiction, the neuroscience of addiction. So the way that this analogy works is I want you to imagine like a small, small cup, okay? Or you can even imagine like a beaker. Like, you know the things, actually, this would be really good for you to imagine. You know, like when you're baking, you have those different cups. Uh, not cups, like like the things that's used to scoop the flour to measure like one-eighth of a cup, a quarter of a cup, half a cup, one cup kind of thing, one-fifth of a cup. You know what I'm talking about? Or they come like in all those different spoons that fit into each other to help you measure when you're baking what is one cup, half a cup, a quarter of a cup, eighth, a sixteenth, okay? So I want you to imagine that. Alternatively, you can imagine like different sized cups from a really small cup to a really big cup, but it's going to be better, I think, if you imagine um, those, those baking um, things, one cup, half a cup, quarter, eighth, sixteenth kind of thing or like teaspoons, tablespoon, teaspoon, you know, half a teaspoon, like the, the different things to measure. So imagine like the baking scoopy things for a cup, one cup, half, quarter, eighth, sixteenth, okay? When you start doing something, or like when you just start getting involved with something in general, um, you're, you're going to be on that one sixteenth of a cup scoop thing. So it's pretty small, Okay. And the ideal level is when it's 80% full. And when it's 80%, you feel amazing. If it feels 100, if it gets to 100% full and it starts overflowing, that's too much stimulation. And some of those neurons are going to die, okay? Because it's like too much, it's going to cause damage. Now, when you're starting this, imagine that you're pouring water into the scooper. You can even do this while you're listening to the podcast to help you understand so it only took one sixteenth of a cup to fill it, right? But let's say that your experience is so good 
uh, you get more. You get like one twelfth of a cup or something, and you get more. And then the one sixteenth of a cup measurement scoop thing starts to overflow. So what your body's going to do is it's going to say, hmm, this dopamine, there's too much of it, it's overflowing, it's causing damage. I'm just going to become less sensitive to it in the future. So what you effectively do is you move now from the one sixteenth of a cup to the one eighth of a cup size. Scooper. Now, the previous activity that you were doing poured like one fifteenth of a cup and it made you feel so incredible that it was overflowing and caused damage. Now, in this new beaker, you still put one fifteenth of a cup, but it only fills less than half of the cup, okay? Because it's now one eighth of a cup big, okay? So it's going to take a lot more to fill it up to full again to make you feel just as good as you felt before. And that's, that's for example, with drug use, that's an example of taking a bigger dose of whatever drug that you're using to make that same effect. And now the whole one-eighth is filled. It overflows. Your body says, uh-oh, I'm going to move to one-quarter of a cup, okay? So you take an even bigger dose to try to get the same effect. Um, because it's not how much is in the cup, it's what ratio of the cup it's in that's going to lead to that good feeling. So when it's 80% full, you feel amazing. 50%, you feel okay. 40%, 30%, you feel down, for example, okay? Eventually, if you keep accelerating the dose, it's going to take a, you're going to, your body's going to change that one cup scoop from the 1 16th, and it's going to take a whole cup, oh, sorry, 80% of that, so 800 milliliters, sorry, wait, 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 no, that's wrong. It's going to take, sorry, 80% of, of a full cup, um, so that is more like, I think, 170 milliliters, I think a cup is 220, I don't know, something like that, to give the same effect as you would have when you started with that one sixteenth of a cup, okay? So if, if you stopped using the drug at this point, when your body changed to one cup and it took like 160 milliliters or 70 or whatever to fill it up 80%, you're going to go through some mega withdrawal because remember that before you only had that one sixteenth of a cup to start with, okay? So you're you only needed like 80% of one sixteenth. Sorry, this is kind of complicated, but like it works out to like maybe five milliliters or, or something to feel satisfied. But because your, your body got used to it and it changed to the whole cup, it now takes like 150, 60 milliliters to feel that same level of satisfaction. So when your body's only making five milliliters, which was great for the one sixteenth of a cup, like was good enough, um, I'm just rounding to five to make it easy to understand. And you only put five milliliters now in the one cup. It's nothing. It's like it's like less than five percent of what you need. So you're gonna feel really down. Whereas when you had that one sixteenth, you felt really good with it. Okay. And this is what I mean by that analogy: that the more you have, the less you have to gain, and the more you have to lose. And also that we get used to things very often. So if something feels really really good. Um, and it gives you to a 10, you're just going to get used to it. Your body's going to change to a bigger beaker. So more is required to have the same effect to protect itself from overstimulation, okay? So you get used to things, okay? Now, a lot of us, we, we don't understand this. We want to always be at 10. We see on Instagram, social media, or whatever we see online that we, you know, we should be at 10, 
you know, everyone always looks like there's a ten on social media. I actually think that social media is very negative for self-esteem um, when it's just used kind of blindly to look at pictures of other people. You see people always like a ten, and you're like, what? You know, I don't have that. Why am I not a 10? Am I doing something wrong? And the answer to that is no. You just simply cannot always be at 10. That's not possible because as soon as you get to 10, your beaker is going to get bigger. It's going to take a lot more to get the same effect and it's going to go down to 7 again. Okay? What I want you to understand from this is you're never always going to be at 10. You're never always going to feel satisfied, feel like everything's going your way, that everything's perfect, okay? You're going to feel good. Like, you can feel decently good many times, like around a 7, okay? But expect to occasionally go down and to go up and be okay going down. This is so such a big concept that Laura Schlesinger talks about in her book, 10 Stupid Things Couples Do to Mess Up Their Relationships, which we'll talk more about in the next episode um, to continue this conversation on feelings don't have IQ. But the big idea here is that you can't always be at 10, okay? Feelings glitch sometimes. They're going to go down. Expect them to go down. And you can't. Remember, as soon as you get to 10, you're just going to get used to it and it's going to come down again to 7. And what's a great example of this a great example is people just getting used to different quality of life throughout generations. So before World War One, there was no airplanes, okay? There was no, um, like, Spotify, things that you could listen to music. There was no computers. Um, there was certainly... Um, no, not, cars weren't that popular either. A lot of people actually rode horses still. But today, it's like you get a flat tire and you think that your life is over. You don't have your phone for one day and you feel like your life is over. Whereas before 2004, people didn't even carry phones. Like, it, it wasn't common to have, a, like, a phone, especially even, like, a smartphone. That's a new technology, guys. And that's just what I want you to understand is that comparatively, life is so much easier in, in some senses. I know that there's a lot of work competition and stuff and that there are other things that are very big in our generation. But comparatively, life is just a lot... There's a lot more that's taking care for us today than there was before. For example, you want to call a friend, you have your phone, you have the internet, you have access to so much information. And I actually think Nicholas Carr talks about in his book, The Shallows, that too much information is actually making us feel anxious. Um, but the idea is like, it's so easy. You want to you clean the dishes, you have a dishwasher. People didn't always have dishwashers. You want to clean your clothes, you have the laundry machine, like it's never been so easy, you want to clean the floors, you have a vacuum cleaner, like people didn't always have vacuums, you want entertainment, you have TV, you have Netflix, you have streaming, like other streaming services, you have your computer, like it's never been easier to get entertainment, to keep the house clean, it's also never been easier to have, to have a big house, a lot of the times before, especially before World War One, like people were farmers and they lived in small like small accommodation that didn't have proper heating, proper cooling, air conditioning. Guys, like air conditioning is like a relatively new thing in, in the spawn of human existence, okay? Um, yes, they were open courtyards and things, but not like we have today, okay? So I just, I just want you to recognize that the quality of life has gotten significantly better over the years. But yet the reason we're still dissatisfied or the reason we still complain is because we get used to things. So I want, I want you to always recognize that you're going to get used to things. You will never always be at a 10. It's impossible. It's better just to be happy at a 7, learn to accept it and recognize that nothing is going to save you from it. At least like over, over the 
the long term. And I think a big thing is a lot of us kind of get dissatisfied because we're not at a 10 and we see on social media that we think people are when they're actually not. Us people are biased. They only post good things. They don't post boring things on social media. So it makes you think that, you know, they're always doing something good, even though that's like the only three minutes of good they had in the day. Oftentimes, it's not even a real smile, okay? Um, but just recognize that feelings, they, we can't always be at 10, okay? They glitch. Just accept that changing your relationship, is, if you're at a 7, isn't going to help you stay at 10. You're just going to get used to that too, okay? Unless it's abuse or, or you know, very extreme things, then, you know, then it's, it's a problem, but I want you to just drive home the idea also, we'll expand on this more in the next episode, that feelings really don't have IQ. They often, very, very often, as we mentioned, they glitch. And it's really hard to tell what is causing that feeling. So for example, if you're thirsty or you don't sleep enough or you're hungry, we're often like cranky towards our partners, towards our peers. Like, you know, that, that concept of like, when you're hungry, you're very cranky, like you're very difficult to be around. We may, get, we may snap and get really mad at our partners, but that actually relates to us just not sleeping enough the night before, just being thirsty, or just, you know, a lot of people are constantly dehydrated. That's why I bring it up. You know, most people, I think, don't drink enough water, so it's very, very important. Um, so just recognize, like, if you're upset at your partner, a lot of the time, your feelings are just glitching. Like, you can't always feel good. They're going to go down for a whole bunch of different things, like your hormones, your hormonal cycles. Um, how much you exercise the day before, how much you've been sitting, how the quality of your sleep that night. And a lot of it is not fully in control. Like sometimes we just have bad sleeps and like, you know, like, yeah, there's a lot of things we can do to promote good sleep. Matthew Walker talks all about this and why we sleep a brilliant book about sleep. Um, but just recognize that if you're mad at your partner, okay, that's, that's what I want you to get from this. You need to really understand that your feelings don't have IQ, okay? They glitch. They glitch. You may think that you're mad at your partner, but it's often related to something completely different, unrelated to your partner, like work, like sleep, like like taking care of yourself, exer- exercising. I strongly believe that if people ate well and exercised, they would be way happier and more satisfied with their partner just because it reflects. It's very hard to know often what is causing our feelings. We get mad at our partner, but it's just that we didn't sleep well the night before, that we're stressed about work, that we're stressed about something else, which is why, as we, as we stressed in previous episodes, you have to take care of yourself to take care of others, okay? Like the airplane, you need to put your mask before you put the others so you're not both unconscious. Um, if, if you don't take care of yourself, if you don't exercise enough, everything, you're going to get mad at your partner often. It's going to show in other aspects of your life, okay? And we'll talk all about this in the next episode. So just to summarize now the whole episode together, because we're running out of time. In the beginning, we started talking about habits, continuing that discussion from the last episode. We really emphasized the importance of environment by talking about soldiers coming home from Vietnam, how when the cue for not using those drugs was gone, um, they were way less likely to use them. 95% of them never touched again, considering also how addictive that drug is. Like, oh my goodness, you might be thinking, well... If it's a brain disease, how is it possible that it healed itself so quickly? And it is important to look at addiction in some respects as a brain disease model, but I think it's also limiting when we only look at it through that way because it doesn't bring in the effect of habits, uh, which play a huge role in the way that we 
we live our lives and, and even face addiction um, as was so big in the eradication of smoking. When did smoking go down? Not just when the knowledge was there, because smoking sales went up between 1964 and the 1980s when the Surgeon General's report was out. We talked about this. Everyone knew about the knowledge. It was when the habits changed, when the queue of seeing cigarettes in cafes, movies, bars, or even their advertising, like in stores, was gone. Uh, you know, when people quit smoking, they often like put water on their cigarettes, throw them away when they could quit drinking, they get rid of their alcohol. When you change the queue, you can change the action, okay? You can you can remove the cue to stop the action from forming. Another really, really, really big thing is that you can practice. Remember, we talked about habits being formed through repetition, and you don't have to wait until the exam, until the conflict, the stress, the move, the child, the thing that really, really takes all of your energy to get good at it, to apply it. You can practice. You can study before, just like you would study for a test before, okay? Practice with your partner through role play, through thinking about it, dreaming about it, imagining what you would do in that situation. Try to just build the habit and recognize, also recognize when it occurs so that you can respond to it. For example, if your habit that you want to form is to take a deep breath when you get stressed, actually consciously think more about what you're doing and how it makes you feel by doing that exercise, using those apps like Dailyo that I mentioned, um, or others which you may prefer, to record how you feel at different parts of the day. You can, By recording how you feel, you can recognize that you feel a certain way. And that can be what inspires you now to take a deep breath. It's practicing, 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 repeating. And this is so important because we mentioned that habits are often pursued in times of stress, right? Because there are sequences of events that we can do with very little bandwidth, with very little thinking. So if we're stressed already about something else and we're thinking about it and we don't really have the space in our minds to think about something else, then we are going to do our habitual response, which may be very negative for us. For example, if your habit of putting your left leg forward is then putting your right leg forward, then you may walk into a pole or a door if you're not thinking because you're on the phone. Okay, and then um, we brought this all together to talk about how habits affect our feelings too. Like there are a lot of cues which lead us to think negatively, to feel bad. Um, but by recognizing those cues in our environment, trying to change our environment, we can start to feel better. We then continued the discussion on feelings and talked all about how feelings don't have IQ. They very often glitch. We think that we always want to be at a 10, okay? But we can't because we get used to the situation that we're in. Very, very often, an example of this is the quality of life, the life expectancy getting significantly better over the past few centuries. And yet we still feel dissatisfied. That's just because we get used to it, okay? Remember that analogy that we talked about with those different sized cups, like the measuring cups for baking or um, whatever you, you visualize of different sizes, and how as the cup gets bigger, it takes more to incite that same response, that same feeling of goodness, which the body does to protect itself from overstimulation, which can cause damage to neurons. It's also very hard to often know what is causing the feeling unless you do the exercise when you record how you feel at different times of your day. You're only going to notice if when you skip dinner or something, you feel really bad in the afternoon of the next day or when you don't exercise for a few days in a row, you got mad at your partner. You're only going to notice that if you write it down every day. You can only see trends, you know, from the big picture, from taking a step back once you write them down. 
because you won't notice it in the moment, but you can notice it later on when you look at everything together and you find what causes those negative feelings or positive feelings, okay? So just remember that you can't always be at a 10. You're often going to go back to seven, okay? And your feelings often glitch. Like if you're hungry, you get mad at your partner. We, we are often confused about what is causing our feelings, okay? But by writing it down like throughout the day, how we feel, what we're doing, and it just only takes a minute, guys, you can be more conscious of what's affecting your feelings and be a little bit more proactive in working to feel better, okay? And just remember, like, I just want to drive this home. You won't always be at a 10. Sometimes we think, if only this, if only that, um, we, okay, but it's, it's only temporary. We're also going to explore more in the last... The next lesson, not just that feelings don't have IQ, but that love is commitment in spite of feelings glitching sometimes. An idea first introduced to me by Laura Schlesinger, a great book, um, her book, 10 Stupid Things Couples Do to Mess Up Their Relationships. So with that, we're going to wrap it all up. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I'm so, so grateful that you joined me right to the end to take on this journey of loving more effectively in a way that's more easier, okay? Building up that love muscle, okay? Love is hard. It can be so, so hard, for, but it doesn't have to be if we just use the tools to make it easier, okay? More effective and more enjoyable too. I hope that you found this episode meaningful and you'll be able to apply it to your relationship and your family, your coworkers, and your life, um, if you have any suggestions about the show, things you want to see on the show, please send me an email at contact at learnlove.ca. I read all the emails. I'm so excited to see what you have to say. Contact at learnlove.ca. Um, if there's anything specific you want to see on the show, please reach out to me there. Um, check out our website, learnlove.ca, to see lots more podcast episodes. Soon we're going to have that interactive component, our blog, Um, for written versions of our articles and so much more and stay tuned for our videos which are going to release be released soon as part of a course and also we'll release some other clips onto youtube so you can watch us there and don't forget to engage on social media we're on instagram twitter uh, learn to love media pinterest and facebook at learn to love i can't wait to see you there Um, And I also can't wait to welcome you back in the next episode. Thank you so, so much for listening. And I will catch you in the next one.